This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. Well, I just think it should be taken off the bad substance list. It shouldn't even be a discussion nowadays. It's just like marijuana is marijuana. It's not harmful to anybody. It only can help and do good things. It's a plant that was put here for a reason, and it's to all bring us together, man. Hopefully it happens, especially in the NBA. Today on the Canadian Podcast, sports and cannabis, specifically snowboarding. What happens when professional athletes want to smoke weed? We start with a medicinal user, snowboarder and Paralympian Tyler Mosher, who started using CBD after a catastrophic injury. I fell 30 feet onto my head into an buttress on the glacier and was instantly paralyzed from the waist down. Snowboarding has a pretty strong recreational cannabis culture too. So we've got Ross Rebliati on the show to tell the story of snowboarding's first ever appearance at the Olympics and the gold medal he won and then lost, then got back. I'm kind of speechless right now. I don't know what to say. I'm just glad everyone's watching back home and every all my friends, my dad's here. It's just a beautiful experience. But just 72 hours after Ross's gold medal run, the sweet taste of victory turns sour. All of a sudden, like I'm the guy that has to tell people about weed to the whole world. And it's not what people think. You know, I was kind of blowing minds by saying things like that 25 years ago. That's all coming up after the latest pot news. Closing arguments have been heard in the case against Manitoba's home grow ban. A group called Tobagrow took the province to court over its restrictions on growing cannabis at home. Currently, the fine for doing so is over $2,500. Campaigners are calling for the ban to be lifted and for the province to adhere to federal regulations on cannabis growing. The judge reserved a decision until a later date. In a similar case in 2019, the Quebec Superior Court struck down that province's homegrown cannabis ban, ruling it unconstitutional because it infringed on the federal government's jurisdiction over criminal matters. In the US, the Biden administration's health services department is recommending that cannabis be moved from a Schedule 1 drug, the same as heroin and cocaine, to Schedule 3, the same as Tylenol with codeine. The health agency made the recommendation to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. They have the ultimate authority on whether to reschedule cannabis. The DEA has said it will now conduct a review. And the RCMP is reviewing its restrictions on cannabis use for frontline staff. Currently, many employees must refrain from cannabis use for four weeks before reporting for duty, but an internal briefing note obtained by the Canadian press recommends that be lowered to 24 hours. The RCMP confirmed the current policy is under review, but no final decision has been made. That's the Pot News. I'm Jay Coburn. Now, Tyler Mosher, Canada. Oh, he's carrying some speed at this final straight. This is a good run from Mosher. We can keep it together. Tyler Mosher, the strain being turned around by the final few features, but lots of time. Let me introduce you to the first of our two snowboarders. My name is Tyler Mosher. I'm a two-time Paralympian, world champion snowboarder, and I've been using cannabis, in particular CBD, since 2000 or before. Tyler is also the founder of Kinlock Naturals. One of their brands is Kinlock Wellness. We focus on everything but THC. We've won the World CBD Gummy Awards, 
a CBZ brand, which is with CBN, CBD. We also have soft gels and we have tinctures. So tinctures, gummies, soft gels, and pre-rolls. Our producer, Karen Habashi, sat down with Tyler to chat about cannabis, CBD, and sports. Before we get into when you started your business, tell us about your history with sports and when did you start going into snowboarding and then your injury? Well, I've always been an athlete. When I moved to British Columbia, in particular after university, I moved to Whistler to enjoy snowboarding. I snowboarded well over 100 days a year for four years until I had a spinal cord injury in 2000 on Blackcomb Mountain. I fell 30 feet onto my head into an abutris on the glacier and was instantly paralyzed from the waist down. Got a well-documented recovery where it took me a couple years to learn to walk again. I was lucky that it was incomplete paraplegia. And then I realized sports for people living with a disability and got involved with cross-country skiing because I couldn't walk in the snow. So I wanted to learn how to be mobile and walk my dog. And snowboarding for the disabled didn't exist either. So in 2003, Whistler was granted the Olympic and Paralympic Games for 2010, and I had a unique opportunity to take Paralympic sports very seriously, and I did just that. Can you tell me more about when did you start using cannabis? Like all people, you're introduced to cannabis at a young age. Some people choose to try it and some people don't. For me, it's always been around, predominantly in university, recreationally, but what I like to focus on post-injury 2000, unlike people who have a similar situation, horrible accidents, I didn't get addicted to any pain medicines. I predominantly just used cannabis from the get-go because I'm very comfortable with cannabis. I quite enjoy it. I think it's a great alternative to alcohol and now that it's everywhere and legal, the quality assurance is far better and you can really identify opportunities for the right dosage, the right type of genetic, and the right combination of the different cannabinoids depending on what you're using wellness medicine for. So you didn't actually use CBD for when you're competing, right? There were drug testing, so I didn't get a therapeutic use exemption. So when you're crossing into a lot of different nations that would include Russia for the Russian Games in 2014. So I took a break going into the 2010 Games when I was being drug tested on a regular basis, especially on season, and I didn't use any drugs whatsoever during that time. But for training seasons, I did use a certain amount. But if I wouldn't have been disqualified, I would have continued to use cannabis throughout my two Paralympic campaigns. Right now, the NBA and other sports agencies are in talk about legalizing CBD and marijuana, that it shouldn't be in the panel with the same other drugs. There's no further marijuana testing at all for the NBA. Now, the NFL still has it. They won't suspend you for failed tests. Do you think Canada should start doing more research about the use of cannabis and sports and whether it's actually more beneficial to allow it? I don't think Canada are going to do studies. I think sport and or cannabis providers, LPs, brands 
should be doing the studies. Health Canada, you know, they're focused on what is safe and what isn't safe. If you look at their scientific committee and how it is compiled, that'll give you the direction of what they're looking at. So whether Canada should be doing it or not is something altogether different. Whether Canadian companies, interest or sport organizations could be looking into it, that's another story. You know, if someone's allowed to go get drunk recreationally because alcohol is, is a poison that you feel a lot more than cannabis and the cannabis is stored in your fat, some people choose to use cannabis and I think there's inherent racism and certain people use cannabis more than others or for different reasons and, and alcohol would definitely slow down someone's training regime. So I think that is a lot more to do with politics and politics and sports and it's bogus and it's the stigma that's attached to the cannabis plant. We all grew up listening to throughout the last century and in particular in the 80s. So I think that that type of scenario where there are politics in sports, there's politics between different commercial interests with different drugs, different natural supplements, and of course recreational with alcohol and other things there. They get brought out in the media. There's always going to be someone with a different perspective than everyone else. But when it comes to athletics and you look at the NBA in particular, I think that's more of a cultural situation when it comes to recreation. And then I think there's a lot to do with, you know, recovery of the other cannabinoids that don't get you high, that lend themselves to a lot of ability to recover. I don't think the listeners should be confused that all top athletes and their training staff are looking for everything for an edge. So I think it's more politics against cannabis than anything else. If these wellness supplements or cannabis helps people on an athletic side, everyone would be using it. And when you look at, you know, Ricky Williams, down in the NFL, or let's face it, the majority of professional athletes that would want to recreationally use THC, they should be allowed to. For me, I remember one day I was sitting in the training room and I was seeing guys come in one by one to get their tordal shot. And I was thinking, if we're doing this for our whole careers, we're having to get shots. What is this going to do to our bodies? I think this prohibition is exactly that, prohibition, and it is... 2023 going on to 2024. And I think it's time for acceptance and change. There still are some international agreements that will prohibit the trade of cannabis worldwide. And that is also something relative to the prohibition in sport, because you might go to one country and compete there where it's totally illegal. So it's not so much that the drug is performance enhancing. It's just people look up to athletes. That nation prohibits cannabis. Cannabis is against the law. The laws are very punitive if you have cannabis. And so that would be also a factor to athletes not using cannabis. But when it comes to the professional major league sports, I think uh, they've all come to terms and I'm sure the player associations are pushing hard for it. And I know the NFL studying it right now for different pain management and different recovery speeds and alternative medicine. And I think you're going to see it widely accepted everywhere. And then if a performing athlete, it's just like if someone's in, you know, addicted to alcohol or, 
or using alcohol in a prohibitive way after their athletic sports, you know, they're just not going to make the team. It's plain and simple. So if you're not a top athlete and you're using cannabis or you are a top athlete and you lose the ability to call yourself a top athlete, and that's because you're not using cannabis in a responsible way and it's negatively contributing to your performance, then you'll be cut from the team. What do you think should be the next steps in the next few years for the use of CBD in sports? Oh, I think it'll be commonplace everywhere. You know, already Major League Baseball has opened it up. The problem is, is that things like the NCAA, there's zero tolerance for THC. So you need to have, again, that quality assured. But I'm pretty sure that the NFL are doing a fair amount of scientific studies right now because a lot of the other drugs that people are using have other risks that are assigned to it. So cannabis will be better for other athletes, but people want people to be healthy. People want people to make healthy choices and choices that for the recreational needs that don't prohibit their sport. And I think we should all be able to enjoy them and, and use them in a responsible way. That was snowboarder and Paralympian Tyler Mosher in conversation with Karen Habashi. Tyler is the co-founder of Kinlock Naturals. Let's go to 1998 and the Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan. It's the first time snowboarding's made an appearance and a Canadian is poised to win gold in the men's giant slalom. And he came into that turn very well set up and slightly ahead, so Ross, if he can hold it together, and he's fighting it right now for all it's worth. If he can hold it together, he could be in there. So at the end of the last few gates, sets it down a bit, but doesn't scrub too much speed. Well, he's and not holding gate left back. to go. Oh, and Ross Rebliotti held that lead and won that gold medal. But his blood betrayed him. The last time snowboarder Ross Rebliotti was at a party in Whistler, B.C., he says he inhaled secondhand marijuana smoke. That was before Nagano, before he won, lost, then won back his Olympic gold medal. What happened after the medal was more of a roller coaster ride than any snowboarding run. Shortly after becoming a Canadian hero, Ross Rebliotti was stripped of his gold medal because he tested positive for cannabis. Just two days later, his medal was returned because it turned out cannabis wasn't actually on the banned substance list. But this gold medal win still ended his snowboarding career, all because of some pot that he didn't smoke. Today, Ross is selling his own cannabis, and he's here to help tell the story of that gold medal, what came before it and what came after. Yeah. I tested positive for cannabis, and that was kind of the beginning of the rest of my life. The Rubliati story starts long before Nagano in 1998. He was an athletic kid who grew up in Vancouver. I was on the swim team, I was on the diving team, eventually started ski racing when I was 10. You know, just kind of doing normal stuff, like as a teenager too, like skateboarding in the summer. When Ross was a kid, snowboarding didn't really exist. He was born in 1971, around the time the first snowboards were built. Skiing was really conservative at the time, and you were wearing like the stretchies and the race sweaters. And skis weren't even working that great either. If one of these skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. 
So uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. When he was 15, his skater friends started getting snowboards, and Ross figured out where to get one, too. There was no snowboard shops. You kind of had to be into it to know where to get a snowboard. Yeah, it was just that allure, the fact that nobody else was doing it, and the skiers were a little bit upset about it, and we kind of liked that, you know, being teenagers. Even if snowboarding is just another California fad, the people who work on local ski hills say one season is one too many. You see any compromise in the future at all? No, no. In the 1980s, jumpsuited skiers and the reflective sunglasses got mad at a few people using one fat board instead of two long thin boards. But still, snowboarding competitions started happening in the U.S. and in Vancouver. Ross was laying the foundations for his snowboarding career. He got sponsored and was appearing in magazines. He was really doing well at snowboarding and not so well at college. So when he was 19, when his parents were out of town, he moved to Whistler. I took the opportunity to make the move without having to defend <laughs> my decision to anybody. So that's what I did in 1990. I moved up to Whistler and immersed myself in snowboarding. Whistler was unlike anything Ross had experienced before. This was where the pros were. So this scene in Whistler was unlike any other scene I'd even realized was reality. And it was basically just guys that were devoting their lives to skiing and snowboarding. And part of that lifestyle was cannabis. Cannabis hadn't been much of a part of teenager Ross's life, but after he moved to Whistler and immersed himself in that extreme sports culture, it became routine. Wake up in the morning, have a good breakfast, and have a few puffs of the joint, get ready for the day, head out the door and, you know, in the dark before it gets light out and get up the chair and get ready for, you know, another awesome day. And throughout the day, we'd be smoking joints in the trees, on the chairlift. So it was just like coffee. Oh, every couple hours we'll look for a spot to burn one. We're gonna go have a little safety meeting in the trees over there. In the fall of 91, Ross turned pro and joined a snowboarding team from Colorado. It was a race team, and Ross had a ski racing background. A natural fit, the coach got him entered into the World Cup in Austria. So I talked to my dad, and we got some money together for me to fly over to Europe. And I got 80th in the first race, and it was a little bit disheartening. Despite that shaky start, Ross went on to win and win, and even when he wasn't winning, he was consistently placing in the top 10. Lots of seconds and thirds. To be ranked number one in the world was my entire goal of being a pro snowboarder. In 1994, they were told that snowboarding would be in the 1998 Olympics at Nagano. As a consistent high ranker, Ross knew that he'd be in those games. It was a competition he never thought he'd get to compete in. I gave out my Olympic dream as a ski racer to snowboard when we weren't even allowed on the chairlift and now to be able to set it, go to the games. So big reception when we got off the airplane, flowers and Japanese presents and a very nice welcome. The snowboarders were up at the ski resort, so we weren't in Athletes Village. 
and then the opening ceremonies down in Nagano, which was going to be a two-hour ride each way, plus the opening ceremonies themselves go into the night. So the fact that our event was the very next morning, first event of the Nagano Olympics, played into a couple of the guys not going for the opening ceremonies just so they could get ready for the race in the morning. I, on the other hand, thought that would be awesome to somehow grab the energy from the opening ceremonies <laughs> and use it the next morning in my race. The Canadian team didn't have technicians, so when Ross got back to his room after the opening ceremony, he still had work to do. So we're all tuning our gear and full commando style, middle of the night, the night before the biggest race in history. The day of the race arrived. Ross Rebliati, with his self-tuned board and ski racing background, is about to compete in the first ever men's giant slalom event in snowboarding at the Olympics. It's a technical speed event, with riders racing down the hill at around 140 kilometers an hour. They swerve left and right, hitting gates as they go over varied terrain. The race hill in Nagano at Siegerkogen was particularly awesome in my opinion. It was really wide open. There was at least two very steep walls and the snow conditions were super hard and almost icy. Competitors get two runs. The fastest in the first run goes last in the second run, the slowest first. Both times are added up and the fastest wins. I kind of had a scrappy first run. I made a couple of mistakes, recovered and finished eight. And because they flipped the top 16, I started eight on the second run. And that happened to be my favorite start position. If you start 16th, the course is already a little bit rutted out. And if you start first, it's so fresh that the new snow isn't scraped off yet and that's a little bit slow. Between Ross's first run and second run, temperatures dropped, wind picked up, it snowed a little, and then some fog came in. So we had like a 10 minute start delay where I was stuck in the race hut. And I remember my coach coming on the radio. He was halfway down the course asking me if I needed a course report from the first seven guys that went down. And at that point, I was just in freak mode, like autopilot. Like there's no more training, you know, there's no more course report. And my answer was, what time are the award ceremonies? Ross was eighth out of 16th. To finish first, he had to make up time. So he knew he had to go really, really fast to win that medal. If he can hold it together, he could be in there. Where most guys would be taking a much wider turn to set up and to carry their speed, I just felt like the only chance I had was to go straight to the first five or six gates and then hold on for dear life down the deep sections, see if I could pull it together. And turns out that my plan worked. I was going so fast by the time I hit the wall, I had no time to get off my edge and onto my next edge for like 30 or 40 gates. It was just like, hang on for dear life. And I knew if I could make it to the finish line, it was going to be a fast time. And yeah, I had a couple of close calls near the finish, but I made it through the finish line with the fastest time with the first eight guys. He's not holding He's to go. Oh, and yeah. time, Ross of Whistler, British Columbia takes over the lead. Ross watched the rest of the competitors complete the course. As their times failed to beat his, he got closer and closer to that gold medal. When the last racer took the slope, he knew he had at least one silver. There was just one person left to beat. 
JCJ Anderson from the Canadian team had the fastest first run. And within the first few gates, I seen a little mistake here and there and they compounded into a bigger mistake. And I kind of knew at that point that he, he was kind of out of the running, but he one of the best guys in the world. So we waited for him to through the finish line. But sure enough, yeah, I stayed in the first spot and couldn't even believe it. So Ross Rebliati, the kid from BC, took the first ever snowboarding gold at the Olympics in Nagano in 1998. I am kind of speechless right now. I don't know what to say. Yeah. I'm just glad everyone's watching back home and every all my friends. My dad's here. And it's just a beautiful experience. Reb Liatti would go down in history as the winner of snowboarding's very first Olympic medal. My dad was in the crowd there and he came to the front by the fence and we had a good hug. But just 72 hours after Ross's gold medal run, the sweet taste of victory turned sour. Ross and his team spent the evening after the event celebrating and partying. The kinds of things you might do if you just won a historic gold medal in Japan as a young guy in your 20s. The next morning, the coaches came in and told everyone except Ross to get out. They told him he had tested positive for something, but they didn't know what, and that he had to go into Nagano to meet with the Olympic Committee. Ross says it was like the athlete version of being arrested. And made it down to Nagano and by myself in a transit bus, wrought with anxiety and dread. Suddenly, the hero's tale felt a little less heroic. By the time I got to Nagano, to get off the bus, it was surrounded by so many media from around the world that we were there to cover the Olympics. All of a sudden, they're just all eyes on me. And I had a hard time even getting out of the bus and getting from there into the hotel. Ross knew that he hadn't taken anything banned, and the last time he'd smoked weed was over six months ago. But still, he figured it must be cannabis he tested positive for. I didn't realize that the secondhand smoke was a problem because I did the three drug tests and nothing came back. So I was kind of in the dark, but it must be that. Sure enough, the International Olympic Committee revoked his gold medal because he tested positive for THC. The threshold for a positive test was really low at the time. And some people believe me, but most people thought it was just a story <laughs> that I came up with to get out of it. There wasn't any information about secondhand smoke or cannabis at the time. Ross appealed the decision and lost. Then he appealed again. The court of arbitration kind of filled me in before their official decision that cannabis is not on the list of banned substances, even though it was for the World Cup tour from the Ski Federation. The IOC list of banned substances doesn't have it. Ross won that appeal. The IOC had never banned cannabis and was wrong to revoke his medal, whether he'd smoked recently or not. So he got his medal back. And then the Japanese police came for him. The people that did my drug test went around the IOC because it was THC and reported me to the police. And so they opened a file on me. So now I, all of a sudden I'm getting this good news, but now I have to go up to the police station. This was before his medal was reinstated. So all the police knew was that Ross's medal had been revoked because he tested positive for cannabis a drug that's highly illegal in Japan and not widely smoked. Ross was taken to a cell and interrogated for hours by Japanese police. He says the interpreter wasn't particularly great and the questions were kind of bizarre. They were asking me like how you smoke weed and how it makes you feel and why you would smoke it and all these kind of questions. It got to the point where they couldn't understand how we smoked it so I 
grabbed one of his cigarettes and broke it apart and then rolled up the tobacco again into a little joint to sort of demonstrate how we would do it. The news that Ross's medal was being reinstated broke while he was being questioned, and eventually with questions getting them nowhere, the police released him. I didn't really know because of the language barrier, but he walked me out to the front of the police station where the Olympic Committee guys from Canada were all excited and cheering, and they didn't really realize like I was actually being processed <laughs> into Japanese jail. Olympic gold medalist Ross Rebliotti returned to Canada a hero. But the pot angle made him more than just a gold medalist. It made him kind of a stoner hero. All of a sudden, like I'm the guy that has to tell people about weed to the whole world, and it's not what people think. You know, and I was kind of blowing minds by saying things like that 25 years ago. Please welcome Rock to Bagliati. I actually flew straight from Tokyo to Los Angeles and did the Tonight Show within two days of getting my medal back. They told me it was marijuana, and I was just like, holy smokes, this isn't good, and holy smokes. Yeah. Doing the media rounds as the face of Canadian cannabis, as well as a snowboarder, made him into an anti-hero. On the one hand, he was doing his best to show that cannabis shouldn't be so demonized. He was a gold medal winning athlete, after all. But there was also a lot of naysayers that openly wouldn't let their kids talk to me or me sign their autographs for them. He was living a glamorous life for a while, but you can't pay bills with glamour. On the one hand, I'm smoking joints with Keith Richards backstage at the Denver show and hanging out with Dan Aykroyd and supermodels in New York and just doing crazy stuff and then totally broke. Can't pay my bills. Roots is flying me around, all expenses paid, so no one really knows I'm broke because I'm flying around on private jets and stuff. But when I get home, there's no money. I got maxed out credit cards. This fame and his cannabisy advocacy ultimately killed Ross's snowboarding career. Or, more accurately, the U.S. government did when they took issue with his fame and advocacy and put him on a no-fly list. I was still also, like, reeling from the whole experience. I think I did come away with some PTSD after those steep highs and lows. If you want to make money in snowboarding, you have to compete in the U.S. in competitions like the X Games. Sponsors aren't going to pay you to chill out in B.C. I kind of hit rock bottom where my truck was out of gas on the side of the highway in Whistler for like two weeks. And the tow truck guy knew it was my truck and he was just leaving it there and I was praying he was going to tow it. <laughs> so when he didn't see my truck out of the gas and I had to get out of the whole pro snowboard psyche and gold medalist psyche and revert into reality where I need to like get a job and pay my bills. Ross got into construction, building houses and operating heavy machinery for about 10 years. All the while, he continued his advocacy for cannabis. The catalyst actually was getting turned away at the border with my baby daughter and my wife. Where are you coming from? We were going to go visit my mom where she lived in Palm Springs. Any friends or family up there? And that was around 2011. And then a switch flipped in my head. I'm taking advantage of this now. I'm no more Mr. Nice Guy. No more Mr. Role Model. No more Mr. Gold Medalist. I'm going all in into the weed business. He started a company called Ross Gold in 2012. Medical cannabis was legal. But they weren't going to actually grow and sell weed for a while. 
It was just too expensive to get started. So they started with bongs. Which in itself was risky because Tommy Chong was just getting out of jail at the same time for having a line of bongs and glass. And so I was really pushing the envelope. I was on the no-fly list. You know, I really felt like I had nothing to lose. If they put me in jail, I would, it would be like a weight off my shoulders. By 2017, Ross was running an illegal dispensary in Kelowna. But with full recreational legalization on the horizon, he decided it was time to close up shop, bide his time, and wait to emerge when the market was ready. In the meantime, he was working in craft micro-grows in BC, which is how he found his suppliers. But this year, Ross Gold launched their own products. So we've selected a couple of strains in particular from our producers. When we launched our bags of flour uh, about three weeks ago, I was out at the production facility and selecting all the buds that we were going to use for the bags just to make sure that they were all on point. We only allow three buds per pack in a three and a half gram pack. We have the two strains, it's Black Diamond Indica and our Organic Mango Gold Sativa. The Black Diamond Indica puts you out super heavy duty. Ross has come a long way from rock bottom and hoping for his own truck to get towed. He has Ross Gold. He has three kids and a wife. You know, we're finally realizing a dream that we both kind of hatched together when we first met in 2012. So it's amazing to see something come together and to sort of manifest this great big idea to go through. We're going to get this legalized. No problem. We're going to have products in stores. Like it is such a pipe dream. So to see it come true, not unlike the Olympics, where it's a bit of a pipe dream, like to say you're going to win the Olympics. It wasn't much different to say we were going to have product in stores across Canada in a legalized world. Thanks to Olympic gold medalist and cannabis entrepreneur Ross Rebliotti for telling us his story. The IOC did add cannabis to the list of banned substances shortly after his medal was reinstated. The New York Times called it the Ross Rebliotti Rule. But in 2013, the IOC raised the amount of THC needed to trigger a positive test to 10 times the previous limit. They say this limit should only give a positive if the athlete ingests cannabis during the competition. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Podcast. I hope you can join us for the next episode of the Canadian Podcast. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. And while you wait for the next episode, why not go to westernbuzz.ca? The Canadian Podcast is an Everything Podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the podcast team or our partners. This show is intended for a 19-plus audience. Thanks to our creative director, Cliff Dumas, showrunner Karen Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, sound design by John Massacar, and thank you for listening. I'm Don Schaefer. The Canadian Podcast, the authority on cannabis in Canada. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com, a division of Patterson Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.